electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, vaccinations continue in the U.S., but there remains a COVID infection crisis abroad. Pfizer CEO Albert Borla goes beyond borders. In a pandemic, you are as protected as your neighbor. So setting aside the moral issues, if we will not be able to provide solutions for India, if we will not be able to provide solutions for Africa, they will become the pool where the virus will replicate. And the hottest topic in Washington, it's infrastructure for everyone, says Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. This isn't just an issue for quality of life for Americans. This is an issue for our business competitiveness, too. You look at our allies, you look at our strategic competitors, definitely China. They are not shy to make big infrastructure investments. Those stories, plus hackers in D.C., minimum wage hikes, and coming soon... A new CEO for GameStop. Either of you want to be considered for the CEO search? Do you have ideas? It's Tuesday, April 27th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. First up today on the podcast, the S&P 500, the index of the largest publicly traded companies in the U.S., hit a new record high Monday. Investors are optimistic. We're looking to a more broadly reopened economy. Dozens of companies are reporting quarterly performance this week. But one soft spot to take note of, the consumer product sector declined yesterday, including some big brand names like Coca-Cola and Procter & Gamble. This comes as commodity prices are surging. Corn futures hit their highest level in more than seven years. Copper, highest in a decade. The cost of materials that are needed to make consumer products and transport consumer products are going up. Data from Bank of America showed that the number of mentions of the word inflation during earnings calls this reporting season has tripled since last year. That's the biggest jump since the bank started monitoring this in 2004. The story yesterday was inflation. It was the consumer products companies that dragged down the Dow. You had Procter & Gamble, you had Coca-Cola, you had Walmart, kind of all lower on this. Remember, just last week, we heard from both Procter & Gamble and Coca-Cola that they're going to be raising prices to deal with these higher commodities costs. We've been talking about it for quite a while. The 10-year note right now is still hanging steady. It's yielding 1.579%. But guys, this is pretty interesting as we have a Fed meeting today to try and determine what they see happening in the market, too. And I think one of the big questions is how much they're going to be focusing on inflation. But again, watching all of these things play out on a daily basis and looking at corn and copper hitting new highs one more time. That corn price, uh, in a previous life, I, I was a commodities uh, broker, and at six bucks for corn is, that's deep. Yeah, that's like, be- that's like the, the old expression, beans in the teens, uh, soybeans. But you don't immediately think, right. uh-oh. You don't immediately think, oh, higher prices, corn's up. But, you know, chips, tortilla chips and, and the like, uh, it's worrisome. Uh, worrisome. We don't need, uh, yeah. don't, don't need that. Uh, but, uh, but the inflation concern... <laughs> then every, it catches your attention. Yeah, that's, that's one. Wait a second. You know, hard shell tacos, things like that. Um, but inflation, that's in the back of everyone's mind. That's the one thing that, that most guys are, and gals are pointing to. 
uh, at this point for the future worry. Some breaking news this morning uh, out of Washington right now, and it's on the minimum wage. Eamon Javers with some of that news for us. Uh, Eamon. I will reveal the news for you, Andrew. This was on embargo until 6 a.m., but the White House saying now that the president uh, will be signing an executive order today to get to a minimum wage of $15 per hour for federal contractors. Remember, the president wanted to do this for everybody earlier in the year. They couldn't get that done due to Senate rules up on Capitol Hill. So this is sort of a drop back position for the president. He wants federal contractors to make $15 per hour. According to the uh, officials who briefed us yesterday on this, uh, what they're hoping to do is put this in federal contracts as of January of 2022, uh, that all federal contractors must be paid at least $15 per hour. They're saying that that will be indexed to inflation every year. So it'll automatically go up. They don't have to do a new executive order every time. Biden officials say they are confident that it won't kill jobs uh, as a result of increasing this. And I asked some Biden officials who were briefing us yesterday what their message was to taxpayers who presumably would be on the hook uh, for the extra wages. They insisted, though, uh, that there will not be any additional cost to this because they say all sorts of efficiencies and other benefits will come as a result of having that. So taxpayers, they say, will not be on the hook for additional costs here. But Joe Biden expected to sign that executive order later today, guys. Back over to you. Just go back for a second. What what do you mean by additional costs? Additional efficiencies. So they're saying that there's going to be improved, all sorts of improved benefits in terms of federal contracting as a result of hiring these workers at a higher price point. And so therefore, the overall hit to taxpayers, they say, uh, will be net zero, right? That's the argument. Eamon, the federal government doesn't work. Why would they ever lay anyone off? They don't have budgets. They don't mind the, the P's and Q's. They don't have to, you know, they don't have a boss that's saying, hey, wait a second, your, your division is spending too much well, money remember, here. It's the federal government. Of course, there I, won't I get, be any I get your, hey, well, I get your one point, Joe. Remember, we're talking about contractors here, right? So these all are right, private companies right, that, yeah, that too, are working but, for the federal yeah, government, but, so not federal yeah, workers themselves directly. They right? charge $1,500 for a toilet seat, and no one asks any questions. Let, let me ask you one other thing. The, the January, the January, yeah, <laughs> the January 2022 number, can we make that the go-to month for all this stuff, like the tax hike on the capital gains? Would you mind if you could suggest that, yeah. that just give us this year. We may have a couple of things we need to do long term. <laughs> Every, everyone uh, gets a free year. Wise, if you've worked at Comcast for the last. I mean, there are certain things that might uh, you might have to do with that. Not saying that, that, that I'm in that point. I'm, I'm sure you've got but, a little paperwork to fill out, Joe. But, you know, interestingly, uh, Jen Psaki yesterday at the White House was uh, reluctant to put some specifics on this capital gains proposal. Right. I mean, she ducked two questions. One was on the timing of when it would kick in. And the other one uh, was on this question of whether the million dollar threshold they're talking about applies to individuals or to households, right? So the big difference there uh, at the top end. I mean, you're dealing with very few people, but still there's a big difference for those people who are caught up in January 2021. Uh, Saki refusing to answer those questions and saying that that they're going to put out some fact sheets later on on exactly what their proposal is. That wouldn't be fair, would it? If they if they blindsided people and said, Jan, it's already too late. You're you know, you're already on the hook. Because it'd be too late if they go retroactive. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to raise taxes on people, you're going to raise taxes on people, right? And the, and the question of fairness is, uh, you know, elections have consequences, right? <laughs> oh, God. I yeah. hope not. I mean, Eamon, they said that, that I think somebody from the administration had said earlier that they wouldn't do it 
without giving fair notice. But is, you know, as somebody pointed out yesterday, look, they told you this is what they were going to do when they were running. Is that fair notice right. that, that this was things that they had campaigned on? I mean, Biden campaigned on it, right? So, you know, the idea is right. that this is a democratic process and we said we we're going to do this. We won the election and now we're going to do it. Uh, the question is whether it's ever going to happen, right? I mean, you got to get this done up on Capitol Hill. And so, you know, think of this yeah. as a starting point in a negotiation and we'll see where we end up. But you know, I, I don't like, think people should be assuming that what like Biden's putting say, out there is the final final answer. They, they also, Jen Psaki goes, but, you know, we promise you it won't be on the backs of Americans. So it's not going to be Americans that are that are doing this. It'll only be those 0.3 percent. And they, I don't know what they are. They're, she uh, did say that, yeah. They're some type of un-Americans, uh, I think. You know, That's what you those, call an unfortunate turn of phrase, right? <laughs> those people. So don't worry, because regular Americans, right. pay, you know, they're not, they have nothing to worry about. But these people... She did, she did say that, and, and you imagine that she wants Good to take thinking. that back. But oh, look, I don't think the so. argument that they're making no, no, yesterday no. That, is that 0.3% of Americans are going to be paying this tax. So it's not a big problem right. for... The vast, vast majority of Americans. The un-American Americans. Right. No, we're talking, I mean, in she truth, we're talking about 500,000 Americans. And that's what we're, right? American, I think it's 500,000 American families right. or 500,000 American individuals. That's the... Um, I think they that's, said households that's, yesterday, but I'd have to go back and check. Households, so, 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 so it's half a million households in the country that will pay a higher, higher rate. Um, and, 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 for, and, right. and the truth is a lot of those households watch, watch CNBC. I think we, we all appreciate that. Um, and um, but nonetheless, let me ask you a separate question. Uh, we also want to ask uh, about yeah. this other developing story, which I'd forgotten about. Uh, the Washington, D.C. Police Department is uh, yeah. now the target of a ransomware attack. Yesterday, uh, you know, hacked data began leaking onto the Internet. That data leak included uh, chief's report, lists of arrests, a list of persons of interest. Hackers have threatened to now release information about police informants to criminal gangs. What is going on here? Yeah, look, that's a tough one. And we've seen these hackers working their way through municipalities and municipal governments around the country, hitting them really hard. A lot of hospital systems uh, where you see people, you know, there's life and death at stake if hospitals go down. Uh, in this case, though, it's just brutally tough for a police department, right? I mean, you talk about your list of informants potentially being leaked out to criminal gangs and retribution all across the city uh, for those people having spoken to the police. And, and that could be a potential wave of violence that you're looking at. So if you're a police department, you've got to decide, do we pay these criminal hackers? Uh, and that's just a tough decision, especially for the police because you are the police department and you would be sending money directly to criminal gangsters. Uh, that seems like an untenable position for a police department to be in. We'll see what they do here. Uh, but, you know, you think about the, the goal of ransomware, right? What is the goal of these bad guys on the other end of the computer? It's usually just to raise money. This one feels like, you know, you talk about hackers cooperating with nation states. This one feels a little bit more political in nature because of the police department, because of the destabilizing nature of what they're talking about potentially doing here. This sounds like an, uh, an effort to generate chaos as well as an effort to generate revenue for the bad guys. It has sort of that political right. undertone to it. So I'll be curious to see what we learn about who's behind all this. Okay. Uh, well, Eamon, we will uh, look forward to you watching that for us. Meantime, GameStop shares, they're jumping. Take a look at this. Company raised $551 million in a new stock offering. It sold 3.5 million shares. It says it's going to use the proceeds to accelerate what it's calling its shift to e-commerce. Now, last week, 
company announced that its CEO, George Sherman, will step down by the end of July and that the board is currently in the process of a CEO search. So uh, stock's now at $181. I don't know. Either of you want to uh, want to be considered for the CEO search? Do you have ideas about I know Kramer has ideas about how he would transform that company. I don't know if he's yeah. on the list. He had like detailed ideas involving Bitcoin and all kinds of stuff uh, uh, for GameStop. It does mean something to be able to sell at those prices, I think. Uh, and and they That's certainly, true. if they're making a transition, it'd be it'd yay. Be good we to sold have. more shares. Bid the stock up. But if you uh, are making transition and you really are <laughs> serious, it'd be good you to have some us. money. I think it somehow puts a marker. <laughs> I know, but it's like up no, nine or ten percent because you I, just got diluted. I, I, Sort of, no, but it sort of makes me more of a believer. It does that, that maybe there's something there. It does because I don't know. Maybe there's one born right. every day. But uh, to be able to raise that money puts a say. stake. Puts Yay, a stake. There's in other the, suckers out there. <laughs> oh, that's horrible. <laughs> Coming up, uh, it's uh, at Becky Quick, I think, isn't it? At Becky, what, what, what's your Twitter? But much more. She's going to be in a suit next time she comes on. You can follow our gang on Twitter at Becky Quick, at Joe Squawk, and at Andrew R. Swirkin. Follow the show, too, at Squawk CNBC. Coming up next on Squawk Pod, not everyone is lining up for their vaccine. Pfizer CEO Albert Borla has a message for those hesitant to get their shots. Think it twice. Look at the data. Look what happened in Israel. Look what happens around the world. And think twice before you make a decision what will affect people around you. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. We are leading up to the launch of our special event, Inspiring America, this Saturday night on NBC and on Sunday right here on CNBC. We're highlighting extraordinary people making positive impacts on their communities. And this morning we are joined by a very special guest and Meg Terrell is bringing him to us. Meg. Well, Andrew, this morning we're joined by the CEO of what is undoubtedly one of the most influential companies of our time right now. Pfizer's vaccine is keeping people safe and helping people uh, get back to normal all around the world. Albert Borla, chairman and CEO of Pfizer, joins us now. Albert, welcome this morning. Uh, you know, we'll all never forget that day your vaccine uh, was found to have more than 90 percent efficacy. It is a day I think a lot of people are marking as a historical one in their lives. And here in the United States, your vaccine is really helping us get back to normal. How are you looking at access around the world to your vaccine, particularly in India, where it is just a horrible situation right now? Yeah, it's, in India, it's a horrible situation. And uh, in uh, other places of the world, uh, the penetration of the vaccinations right now and the availability of vaccines is, is, is lower. And uh, the way I see it is a very big uh, issue and problem, not only because ethically it's unacceptable, but also because uh, uh, in a pandemic you are as protected as your neighbor. So setting aside the moral issues, if we will not be able to provide solutions for India, if we will not be able to provide solutions for Africa, they will become the pool 
where the virus will replicate and will uh, generate uh, variants. So this is something that needs to be addressed. Are you seeing um, work moving at a good pace toward actually addressing that, to getting vaccines, either yours or others, in, in higher quantities to India and to countries in Africa and others around the world that don't have access? And how do you see that system uh, really working? What is the best way to achieve global access when manufacturing is still getting ramped up everywhere? Oh, absolutely. I think that uh, everybody's doing great progress, but I can speak about uh, ourselves. Uh, as you know, when uh, we made these uh, announcements about the vaccine, we were forecasting to build uh, one billion doses for this year. But then uh, we we did uh, tremendous, tremendous progress in improving the processes, in building uh, infrastructure with the speed of light, in uh, f- resolving issues of third-party suppliers. Right now, we are very comfortable that uh, this year we will produce two and a half billion doses, if not more, but at least two and a half billion doses. And uh, that means on an annualized basis, three billion doses that coming from only one company. This is a lot of doses, and clearly uh, they can be used not only in uh, uh, the north part of the hemisphere, but also in the south, not only on the rich, but also on the poor. Uh, The second, so the first one is availability. And the second one is to make sure that there is not a a price barrier. And um, already from uh, May, June, when uh, we started signing our first uh, commercial contracts, uh, Pfizer uh, implemented a tier pricing. So the high-income countries uh, like the US, Europe, Japan, etc., that uh, they are having a tier pricing of uh, what they call the cost of a meal, uh, which I think is very reasonable and allows every government to, to procure it. But then the middle-income countries, they have a price which is half of that. And the low-income countries, they are uh, having a price which is uh, at cost, at non-profit. So with those two, I think uh, uh, we are um, marching towards uh, a situation that a solution can be found. Uh, Albert, there's a, a, in a New York paper, it's the Post, admittedly, but COVID cure may be ready this year from a Pfizer drug. And it's a, it's a, a, a I know you know which one I'm talking about. PF zero seven three two one three three two is what it said, but it, it prevents a replication of, of COVID in the nose and and, and could be an oral uh, medication. And they're calling it a cure. Could be ready next year. Is that headline accurate? Well, it is accurate that we are working in uh, antiviral, and um, we are working actually on two. One, it is injectable, and the other one, as you just said, it is an oral. And particularly the attention is on the oral of the world and of us, because provides several advantages. And one of them is that you don't need to go to the hospital to get uh, uh, the treatment, which is the case with all the injectables so far. But uh, you can get it home. That could be a game changer. Uh, the compound that we are talking about, and you said very well the numbers, it is a protease inhibitor. Um, the good thing it is that this is also the first um, molecule that is coming from this type of uh, class. Um, This is a good thing because you can combine it uh, with other classes. Also, the mechanism of action, it is such that uh, it's not expected to be subject to mutations, particularly because it's not acting on the spike. As we all know, all the mutations that we are hearing right now are changes in the proteins of the spike. This one doesn't work there. So that allows uh, us to believe that it will be way more uh, uh, effective against uh, multiple variants. So all good news, 
Uh, we are now progressing the studies and uh, we will have more news uh, around summer. Around the summer. I mean, what do you think is a reasonable time frame, Albert, for a small molecule antiviral pill like that to get through phase three and actually to get out there and potentially be available if all goes well? Meg, if all goes well and we implement the same speed that we did so far, and we are, uh, and uh, if regulators also do the same, and they are, uh, I hope by the end of the year. All right, really quickly for you, because uh, we've got to go, but I just have to ask you, you know, a lot of folks wondering about your timing for the vaccine for kids. You've uh, had data in kids ages 12 to 15. When are you expecting an FDA potential decision on that? And when could this get out and available for teenagers? Well, as you just said, it, it is in the hands of FDA, the hands of EMA, the hands of other regulators. They are scrutinizing all the data as they should. Uh, I'm very optimistic because uh, I know the data and they were... Uh, uh, they were having 100% efficacy and uh, very, very good tolerability and uh, safety profile. So based on that, I believe uh, that uh, FDA and EMA will move very, very fast. So it's a question of weeks. And the other question for you here, Albert, in the United States is we're getting to this point where the folks who really wanted a vaccine have probably at least been able to get their first shot already. How does Pfizer seek to reassure people who might be hesitant about the long-term safety of your vaccine, um, that this is something that will help them and will protect them. How do you um, counter when, when folks ask you, how can you be sure this was tested so fast? What do you tell your friends and relatives who might think that? Look, I, I will tell you what is the thing that you should never tell to these people. You should never try to ridicule them or to challenge their judgment or to, 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 to shame them because of their decision. They are all good, decent people. And uh, either they have a, a real fear or they have been uh, misinformed. So you can tell a lot of things. What I have noticed is that it's not to me that I'm the best to convince people. It is others that they do not have an interest. It is the scientists, it is the journalists, it is the political leaders, it is the leaders of the communities. But of course, it's also me. And um, I found that what really resonates with those people it is when you explain to them that, okay, you may have your doubts, but your decision is not going to influence only your health. Your decision to get vaccinated is going to influence the health of others and likely the health of the people that you like and you love the most because they are the people that you interact with them. So think it twice, look the data, look what happened in Israel, look what happens around the world and think twice before you make a decision that will affect people around you. All right, Albert Borla, we appreciate you being here today. Uh, thanks again. We'll see you soon. Next on Squawk Pod, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg defining infrastructure and autopilot in the wake of a deadly crash in Texas. Policy needs to evolve to keep up with the technology around automated vehicles. It's very important to point out that anything available on the market today is designed to assist a driver, not, not to replace a driver. And have you voted for us yet for the Webby's People's Voice Award? Head to Webby, that's W-E-B-B-Y, awards.com. We are in the podcast categories and would love your support. We're back after this. 
CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin, along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan. All right. President Biden is scheduled to make his first address to Congress tomorrow. A major topic will be his more than $2 trillion infrastructure proposal, which includes spending on everything from upgrading roads and bridges to broadband to home care services. But congressional Republicans aren't fans. A group of Senate GOP lawmakers has unveiled a roughly $570 billion counterproposal. Joining us right now to talk about the competing plans and how President Biden plans to pay for his plan is Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. And Mr. Secretary, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me on. Nice to be with you. It's good to see you. Uh, We can talk about the Republicans' plans, but I think everything kind of hinges on, on what Democratic Senator Joe Manchin is planning and doing right now. People have been watching him very closely, especially in recent days, as it looks like he is really starting to tap the brakes on things. Um, You all can't use the budget reconciliation without his vote because it's such a close Senate at this point. And I just wonder, have you or anybody else in the administration reached out to Joe Manchin to see what his thoughts are and how quickly you might be able to sway him? Yeah, sure. We're in touch with him. He prefers a bipartisan approach, and so do I, and so does the president. And that's why we're not only in dialogue with our fellow Democrats uh, across the spectrum, but of course, we're in dialogue with Republicans. Uh, we're glad they came to the table with their version. That's that's a starting point. Uh, but uh, we also need to be moving pretty quickly here because I think the American people expect results quickly. You know, we've allowed our infrastructure to fall to 13th place in the world. And one area that there's strong bipartisan agreement, definitely out in the country uh, among the American people, is that we've got to act and we've got to invest in a big, big way. That's what our plan does. And that's what we're discussing every day with people from both houses and both parties. I I think you're right that there is definitely some bipartisanship when it comes to infrastructure. But that depends on your definition of infrastructure. And the big plans and moving forward quickly probably don't correlate correlate with bipartisanship at all. Joe Manson wants to slow down and talk to Republicans and embrace. At this point, it looks like something between 600 billion or 600 billion and a trillion dollars in infrastructure. Is that something that you're willing to give him time to to sort out with the other side? Yeah, we're, we're eager to have these conversations, and, but we've got to make sure that it's big. We've got to make sure that these investments are over the baseline of what would have happened anyway. And these are exactly the conversations that are going on right now. Uh, you know, I think it was a mayor who once said that there's no such thing as a Democratic or a Republican hole in the road. So uh, I've got to believe that if there's any area <laughs> of bipartisan cooperation left, this is it. We know that our roads and bridges need work. We know that our ports and our airports are not what they could be. We know that Americans have been asked to settle for less on rail, on transit. And by the way, this isn't just an issue for quality of life for Americans. This is an issue for our business competitiveness, too. Uh, You look at our allies, you look at our strategic competitors, definitely China. They are not shy to make big infrastructure investments. And a lot's going to depend on what we here in the early 2020s choose to do. But Secretary, if you look at 
infrastructure, again, the bipartisan angle is one that's a much narrower definition of infrastructure and probably one that fits into your purview as a transportation secretary a little bit better, too. Would you be okay with a stripped down version like Senator Manchin has said that he wants that does not include some of the at home services and some of the in the community services that really just looks at more traditional examples of, of transportation, things like bridges, roads, even broadband? Would you be okay with taking a trillion dollars or less of a package? and focusing just on that? Well, we believe these things go together. That's why the president planned them in a package that goes together. But there's a, a really complex process of give and take and legislative mechanics, and we're going through that process right now. What I will say is uh, I think the, the debate over whether to call something infrastructure is a little beside the point. You know, the truth is uh, a strong majority of Americans believe in making sure that something like elder care is more affordable. I think that's part of our economic infrastructure because a lot of people aren't in the workforce because they can't afford uh, to take care of loved ones. But if, if you don't think that's infrastructure and we still agree that it's good policy, then my message to uh, those Republican legislators is, hey, vote for it anyway. Call it whatever you like. And, and we can both celebrate doing something good for the American people. But this this is the process we're going through right now. And, and uh, I do think we're going to get to something that's going to be good for the American people and it's going to help move us forward. Mr. Secretary, I, I agree completely with, with something you said earlier, and I was really happy to hear you say that, uh, that, that infrastructure improvements will benefit our, our corporations and, and their ability to, to compete globally, which is what we really want them to do. Then I think about probably your support for raising corporate taxes back to 28 percent, and you, you add in state taxes, and it goes up quite a bit higher than that. You put in the guilty part of things, the GLTI part of things, you can get up to where we're the highest tax uh, uh, nation in the world uh, in terms of corporations. And I'm just wondering, how do you square those two? That, that you, you understand we need to be competitive, our corporations, yeah. but you don't think that it's many people on the, uh, both on the other side and nonpartisan, even some organizations, definitely think we're, we're going to hurt our competitiveness if we raise corporate taxes to those levels. Yeah, well, I square them by looking at the data and the evidence from the United States. Uh, look, uh, American corporations and business sector was competitive in the 60s, competitive in the 90s, competitive in the 2000s, all periods where we had a 35% or much higher rate. So to tell me that something has gone wrong in the American business community, that it's this business sector that was incredibly competitive at 35 plus, has suddenly lost its capability to be competitive at 28. It, it just doesn't seem to square with the evidence. Well, there, uh, the rest look, of the, there was a time, remember, there was a time when 28 was what conservatives but, were hoping. But to the, cut rest the, the, world is, right, too, second, the rest was, of the world has been going down. You know, that's what that's why they call it a race at the bottom. The rest of the world uh, has been cutting and, and competitive is one thing. American businesses will always be competitive. I'm talking about less competitive than they are right now. And we did see some benefits. Uh, from the recent cut. So I, I yeah, so the race to the bottom is a real issue. And that's one of the reasons why the president's plan adjusts uh, the issues that are incentivizing parking dollars overseas. Uh, but again, there's every evidence that American business can handle this. And this has been modeled, right? You look at uh, Moody's analysis, for example, shows that America creates more jobs if we do this plan, including the tax plan, uh, than if we don't right. do this plan. Uh, because uh, the biggest thing holding America uh, back right now uh, at least in terms of our long-term outlook for competitiveness, is the fact that we've tolerated a deteriorating infrastructure. Look, you can't get something for nothing. Uh, but when you add this all up, I think it's going to be a win, not just for the American people, 
but for businesses too. Even if some of those corporations that have paid zero taxes on billions of dollars of profits in the last few years have to pony up a little bit to make sure it happens. Hey, Mr. Secretary, um, question about the framing of this. Right now, the higher taxes are, are being framed as effectively pay-fors uh, for the infrastructure package and some of the other ambitions by the administration. Um, the question I'd ask you is, if, for example, the price of the infrastructure package ultimately came down by half or even even less than that, um, do you believe that the tax, uh, the, the tax raises should come down as well? Or are the tax raises something very different, which is just to say that we want to bring in more revenue more broadly, deal with debt, deal with other things? Or do you think of them as directly tied? Well, there's a reason that the, the, the amount we're proposing to invest and the amount we're pro proposing to raise in terms of revenue are connected. They align because the president believes that the vision he's putting forward ought to be paid for. And then when you run it out past the 15-year window uh, where we collect those revenues uh, uh, for, for these purposes, uh, it's actually serving to reduce the deficit starting in, in year 16. Now, uh, I know that that's, that's the template, right? That's the plan we put forward. Uh, Congress will have all kinds of ideas uh, about the pay-fors, the revenues, and the spending. And, and that's part of what has to be discussed and negotiated now. But uh, I just want to stress that the, the plan the president put forward, the vision that we're arriving at this negotiation with, is one that's fiscally responsible in that we've actually identified how to pay for everything we're proposing to do. Uh, Mr. Secretary, can we ask you uh, about another issue that we spend a lot of time focusing on, and, and that's the, the, the crashes that we've seen from some of these autopilot uh, vehicles, these uh, vehicles that let you drive yourselves. Right now, NHTSA, which is under the control of the Transportation Department, is looking into, I think, 24 different cases of crashes like these. And there's been a lot of public commentary after a crash um, over the last week in Texas. Um, in the meantime, the head of the NTSB has said that he thinks that, that there needs to be more control asserted on what companies can and can't say about what autopilot is. I just wonder what your thoughts are on that matter. Yeah, so the, the Texas crash is under investigation and NITS is involved in that, so I can't speak to that directly yet. But, but let me mention two things. Uh, first of all, policy needs to evolve to keep up with the technology around automated vehicles. You know, automated vehicles... Uh, present a, a tremendous opportunity, including, by the way, theoretically, a huge safety opportunity because human drivers uh, are don't have the best track record when we're seeing you know, well over 30,000 fatal crashes a year. Uh, but that, that's talking about the future. In terms of the technology that you can get right now when, when you buy a car with, with these advanced features, it's very important to uh, point out that anything available on the market today is designed to assist a driver, not, not, to replace a driver. It, it counts on you being in your seat, paying attention. And that remains the, the, the main issue of safety today is having attentive, drive, attentive drivers, not distracted, not impaired. And we're gonna continue driving that with NHTSA even as we're looking ahead to what's going on with technology. And, and frankly, we need to work with Congress because the authorities that we have are designed around uh, the vehicles we've known up until now. We've gotta be ready for the vehicles that Secretary Buttigieg, it's great to see you today. Thanks for your time. And that's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. And to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, CNBC.com, wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow.
CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.